So we're going to start with Zephaniah chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Amon, king of Judah. I will sweep everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice He has consecrated those he has invited. Um, And then moving forward to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to actually start a little bit earlier um, in chapter 4, verse 13, and continue through to chapter 5. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Campbell. Uh, The kids are going out. Have they already got it? No, not yet. Uh, Kids, you're going with Auntie Kirsten and Auntie Laura to have your own time of teaching. Feel free to go out, kids. uh, 
Wonderful. Hello, friends. It's good to be uh, with you this afternoon. I uh, uh, preached at Grasslands this morning, so I bring uh, their welcome uh, to you. Um, it was great to join them. Uh, they have a more discussion-style um, study today, so there will be some questions that come up uh, periodically through the sermon. I'm not going to stop. Um, uh, when they come up, but they will be at the end as well. So if you want to think about them, they're, they're at the end. Okay, let's get into it. You've probably had the experience, in fact, uh, this happened to me um, today uh, as I uh, arrived, of joining a group of people who are talking and you're trying to work out what the conversation is about. Uh, as we near the end of our journey through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, we're coming in in the middle of a conversation, which is why you probably noticed that we heard last week's passage read as well as this week's, because they really concern the same topic. Uh, while they address slightly different things, it's worth hearing them together so that we uh, can remember what was said in last week's passage as we consider this week's. That topic is the hope of the gospel, the hope of Jesus' return. Last week, that particular hope was the gospel in death. And this week, it's what I'm calling the gospel in expectation. We'll look at three things. What to expect, how certain our expectation is, and living expectant lives. So I'll pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and thank you uh, for your spirit, which helps us understand the word. I pray that uh, as I preach, I would uh, speak only truth, and that uh, we would learn more about you and encounter your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name. So what is it that we're expecting? Well, I said it before, we're expecting Jesus' return. As he promised before he went to heaven, I will come again and take you to myself. Last week, we looked at one part of this good news that Jesus is returning, hope in the face of death. So everyone who trusts in Jesus who's died will rise bodily to new life upon Jesus' return to earth. Death is not the end. It's an interruption. It's the interval between two acts of a play. But more than that, when Jesus returns, we will all experience what now only those who have died experience partly, everlasting life with Jesus. So the hope of the gospel in death is not just life after death and reunion with all those who have already died, but eternal life with our Lord and God. As John put it in his gospel, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So that's what we looked at last week. This week, 
we're looking at another aspect of Jesus' return, what Paul uh, calls the day of the Lord. Now, Paul is referring here to a biblical theme that goes back almost to the start of Scripture. And so we're going to go through a sort of a whistle-stop tour of, of Scripture, and I want to draw your attention in particular to four things about the day of the Lord. So we're going to start in the book of Exodus, when God's people, the Israelites, were enslaved by the Egyptians. God heard their cries, and he sent a leader, Moses, to save them. And when Moses brought them out of Egypt, he told the Israelites to remember the day, the day God, that God brought them out of Egypt. So the first thing to know about the day is it's the day of the Lord's salvation, the deliverance of his people from those who oppress him, oppress them. Now this salvation was achieved by God defeating their oppressors, the Egyptians. The story of Exodus is a contest between God on one hand and Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods on the other. And the day ends with Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods humiliated, Pharaoh's uh, eldest son dead, and his army at the bottom of the Sea of Reeds. Many centuries later, uh, when uh, the Israelites uh, were, uh, had their own kingdom in the land, Isaiah picked up the image of God the warrior to pro prophesy about another day when God would come to save his people from the nations who opposed and oppressed uh, the nation, uh, God's people in his time. And so he spoke in quite uh, dramatic language about when God would turn up, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord. The arrogant will be humbled. Human pride will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. So the second thing to know about the day of the Lord is it's the day of the Lord's victory over the powers who oppose him and oppress his people. But God isn't a mere tribal God. He doesn't just fight for his people. Isaiah's near contemporary Amos reminded the Israelites that the Lord is righteous. He opposes all who do evil. And he warned the Israelites not to look forward to the day of God's judgment when he would destroy their enemies. When they, the Israelites, also did evil, they also rejected God. In fact, Amos said that when the Lord came on his day, he would fight the Israelites as well. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. Amos uh, foresaw that on the coming day, God would exile his disobedient people. A little while uh, later, Zephaniah depicted this day of judgment in cataclysmic terms. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. We heard these dramatic images of complete and utter destruction. These, these speak the language of uh, apocalyptic writing. So it's best to read them as 
not necessarily talking about the literal destruction of everything on the earth, but uh, using symbolic language to convey the universal and final nature of this coming victory and judgment. The point is that while the day of the Lord will involve great upheaval, no one will escape judgment. All evil will definitely be brought to an end. So the third thing to know about the day is it's the day of the Lord's judgment upon all people, including his own. And as the prophets prophesied, Israel was exiled uh, as, as God's judgment upon them. And they were sent out of the land just as Adam and Eve had been ex expelled from the Garden of Eden. The years went by, and even after God's people were permitted to return to the land, in a sense, a spiritual exile continued. God's presence somehow didn't fill the temple as it had in the same way before the exile. God's people remained oppressed, ruled by other nations, and there was no descendant of David on the throne in Jerusalem. So new generations of prophets promised yet another day when God would return, overthrow the nations that ruled them and install a king of his own choosing to rule them. So the last thing I want you to know about the day then, is the day of the Lord's return to reestablish the rule of his designated king. So putting that all together, the day of the Lord is the day God returns to rule through his chosen king, bringing salvation through victory and judgment. It's the day God returns to rule, bringing salvation through victory and judgment. So all of this brings us back to 1 Thessalonians and the return of Christ, where we started. So just as prophets in the Old Testament foresaw specific days when God the warrior would secure victory over those who oppressed his people, by judging the wicked and restoring his rule over Israel, so now we look forward to the day, that final day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, bringing salvation through judgment and establishing God's rule on earth as it is in heaven. On this coming day, Jesus will inaugurate his rule on earth by sweeping from the face of the earth all evil, all who do evil, and all the evil powers who oppose God and draw people away from him. So I wonder, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about the coming day of the Lord? Instead of hopeful anticipation, perhaps maybe you feel a little uneasy, feel a bit unsure about the coming judgment, I mean, if you have any awareness that you deserve condemnation for the wrong that you do, the certainty of coming judgment may prompt more anxiety than hope and anticipation in you. So one solution to this anxiety is to work out, well, exactly when is this going to happen? Throughout history, there's many people who've 
done this or tried to do it. Many people were certain that Jesus would return 1,000 years after he went to heaven. Others declared his return to be in 1844. And people, there's a whole movement of people who quit their jobs, sold their property or gave it away, which put them in a very difficult position when Jesus did not return. I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus also did not return as confidently predicted in 1988, 1989, 1992, 2000, or 2012. Anyone who says they know when Jesus will return is a false teacher. Don't listen to them. Scripture says that the time and date of Jesus' return is hidden and unknowable. You see, knowing when Jesus returns is the wrong solution to any anxiety about the coming day of the Lord. If, if we knew the day, well, let's think about it. If we did know the date and the time, would that actually be helpful? Perhaps if you knew that, well, Jesus wasn't going to come back in your lifetime, perhaps you might not take his teachings so seriously because, well, that's for a future generation to work out. On the other hand, Jesus doesn't want people to obey him or follow him just because they know that he's coming back. He's coming back soon. That's, that, well, that's fear-based compliance, not joyful obedience. It's not coming from being transformed into his image. If that's the wrong solution to anxiety about Jesus' return, what's the right one? Well, instead of knowing when the day of the Lord will occur, in this passage we're reminded uh, with a pair of illustrations of the certainty of what will happen when it occurs. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. Okay, on the face of it, these images are not that comforting. But actually, if you think about it, they are reassuring to anyone who, like the Thessalonians, were facing persecution. Wanting to know when Jesus returns for, for these people is really wanting to know how long must we endure, how long must we suffer until Jesus comes and removes the, the, this harassment and the people who are persecuting us face justice. Don't be dismayed, says Paul, that those who persecute you appear to have the upper hand. The peace and security that they enjoy is an illusion. They will be surprised by God's judgment, which will overtake them as forcefully, as unexpectedly, and as unwelcomely as a thief in the night. Every regime that seeks to establish security by persecuting Christians, well, persecuting anyone, will in the end, fall. Every ideology that seeks social harmony by opposing Christ and his followers will not last. And every person who wrongs another in the name of peace will face judgment. So from the perspective of the persecuted, the day of the Lord 
is more like childbirth. The arrival of labor can't be predicted exactly, but it's inevitable, it's going to happen sometime. It's expected. Usually it's long hoped for. It's a welcome deliverance and the start of new life. Jesus' return to rule on earth means victory over those who oppose him and his, his followers. His judgment upon uh, people means salvation from persecution and opposition for his people. And salvation not just from persecution, but from all evil, from everything and everyone that harms us, from all the wrong people do to us, and from all the sin and temptation that beset and ensnare us. Because, you know, it's not just humans who will be defeated and judged on that day, but the spiritual powers who oppose God and seek to lure us away from him to our destruction. The book of Revelation depicts the defeat of all evil, all evil powers on the day of the Lord. The devil was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. So we can actually look forward to the day of the Lord as one of vindication and liberation. We have this expectant hope because we know how the story ends. We don't know when or exactly how this will occur, what leads up to it, but we've been shown the last page of the book. We know how it ends. So actually this certainty should comfort us, it's a comfort. But it's also a challenge. I think the challenge, or it's a couple of challenges depending on who you might be. And these become clear in the night and day contrast Paul draws between the Thessalonians who were expecting Jesus to return and everyone else who was not. Now, those who are not aware that Jesus is returning as judge or don't believe that he is, they're in darkness. They belong to the night. They're asleep or they're drunk. These are really all ways of saying the same thing. They're just completely oblivious of the coming day and they will be unprepared because they are not focusing on the coming day but the present since I think also, since just before in, in chapter 4, Paul used sleep as a metaphor for death, I think there might be a hint too here of the perilous spiritual condition of those in darkness. Not only ignorant, not only unaware of the coming day, but they are already spiritually dead, apart from God. So, if you don't follow Jesus, or if you're not sure that following him is a good thing to do with your life. This is quite a stark challenge that Paul puts before you. Will you be ready? Will you have decided when Jesus returns? Jesus now offers you abundant and everlasting life with him. I'd love to talk to you more about it if this is you, if you're curious. I mean, even if you're skeptical, I'd love to talk to you about it. But actually, this passage focuses on the other side of this night and day contrast. 
The main challenge here is to us, who are expecting with certain hope of the return of our Lord and God. As children of the light, who belong to the day, we're to be awake. That is, we're to live with an active awareness that Jesus could return at any moment. But this expectation is to be sober. We're to be prepared for Jesus' return, but equally prepared that he doesn't return in our lifetimes. We're to be alert, but not alarmed. Not, not jumping at shadows, not reading the news and searching the scriptures for signs of the times that the, the end of the world is nigh. I mean, there's a danger here. Don't go down the rabbit hole of focusing on all that is wrong with the world and thinking that Jesus' return is, is imminent because the world can't get any worse. And this is a road to pride and paranoia, to withdrawing from the world in fear and contempt, to preaching at it, to preaching at people rather than building friendships and speaking love and truth to our friends. So circling the wagons, hunkering down and waiting for Jesus to come and destroy the world, that's not what Paul wants us to do. No, we're to take a much more positive and proactive approach. But if I'm honest, Jesus' return doesn't often figure much in how I live my life or think about my life, the decisions I make. So how would we live if we lived like we're expecting Jesus to come back? How could the certain hope that Jesus is returning to rule and bring salvation through victory and judgment shape our lives and our church? Well, I guess in one way it's obvious. Since Jesus is coming back and will judge all we do, well, all we do matters. But actually, I think even more critically, since everyone we meet will likewise face this judgment, everyone we meet matters, and how we treat them matters. Uh, in, in an essay where C.S. Lewis was reflecting on the eternal destinies of people, uh, he grappled with this and he wrote, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Everyone we meet is heading either for everlasting glory or everlasting destruction. As Lewis points out, because of this, how we treat people has eternal consequences. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. Everything we do either helps people move towards Jesus and life with him, or draws them away from Jesus and to, ultimately to destruction. Uh, Lewis continues, 
This does not mean that we're to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love. Taking people seriously, showing costly love, well, this sounds like Paul's program for living expectant lives. To bring us back to Thessalonians, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. This, of course, is a callback to the start of the letter when in the uh, prayer of thanksgiving for the Thessalonians, uh, Paul thanks God for their work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by hope. Our faith in Christ and hope for his return is what enable us to endure present suffering and to respond to evil with love and forgiveness. Love expressed in active care and compassion. So, Living expectant lives is taking people seriously, the people in our lives, and loving them with a joyful and costly love. As one commentator notes, service, not speculation about dates or times, is the proper preparation for the coming day. An example of what this looks like in practice uh, is uh, organization called Christian Faith Ministries, which is a peacemaking mission in northern Nigeria. The founders of CFM, uh, Kent and Ruth, were called by God to work in a region wracked by violence between militant Islamic groups like Boko Haram and the Christian minority. And they responded to the deadly persecution, the literally deadly persecution, where villages were razed uh, people killed, kidnapped, raped. They responded to this persecution by forming relationships of trust and service between Christians and Muslims. They worked to build trust, working together with Christians and Muslims to together build community facilities. They provided refuge for Christian and Muslims fleeing violence. And they taught the gospel and theology, training up a generation of, of pastors and ministers. This is costly, vulnerable love, seeking relationships of peace with your enemy. Such love only makes sense if you have faith that God values and offers salvation to everyone, even to people who are trying to kill you. It makes sense only if you have the hope that all evil, whether it's perpetrated by your enemies or by your friends, will all one day be accounted for. So who in our lives, in our neighborhoods, is God calling to love like this? We, of course, don't face such deadly persecution, but in our 
polarised world, it's not hard to find opportunities to be peacemakers. In our anxious world, it's not far, hard to find opportunities to bring comfort and encouragement. Of course, to do this, to love our enemies or to love just people who don't like us requires vulnerability. It's all very well f f to say that God will at some point, we don't know when, come and make everything better and judge all the evil, but, but the wounds that are, that are inflicted on us, they harm us now. It's no wonder then that we so often retreat into a defensive posture or go on the attack, returning evil for evil. In fact, the world teaches us to protect ourselves from loss and pain and embarrassment by picking up weapons, the weapons of blaming others, of denying our flaws and bad behaviour, justifying the wrongs we do as necessary, excusing our vices as understandable, and focusing on the wrong that everybody else does. If we're to be vulnerable with our love, we need to put down these weapons. Because only then can we properly use the armor that God gives. Like David faiths in Goliath, we need to discard King Saul's armor and trust in God's provision to protect us. Because uh, what Paul is saying here is that God has given us his very own armor. Paul is riffing here on an image from Isaiah uh, in, when Isaiah depicts God as a warrior, a warrior fighting on the day of the Lord. Isaiah said, the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. So the armour that Paul says that we wear now is God's. God's provided to us already. We don't need the weapons of the world to protect us. And yet, and yet, we will only find the courage to discard the world's weapons and to don God's armour if we're certain that faith, love and hope actually will protect us. So I'd like you to notice uh, Paul's chain of reasoning here. Sometimes Paul can be a bit hard to follow. So I've, I've put together what I think his chain of reasoning is and I think, yeah, it's up on the screen. So we're enabled to be sober and awake because we wear the Lord's armor of faith, love and hope, which is ours because we belong to the coming day. We belong to the day because we belong to Jesus who is Lord of that day, we live with him. And this is because we're not appointed to suffer wrath, but to re receive salvation through our Lord because he died for us. Okay, that's quite a long chain, but I think the important part is that ultimately our fate, faith, love and hope is founded on Jesus' death for us on the cross. Hope, of course, looks forward, forward to the coming day when the spiritual powers are finally done away with. 
Faith looks back to the day of the Lord's death and the day of his resurrection to new life which displays God's love for us. Because you see, in, in a very real sense, the day of the Lord is not just a future thing. The day of the Lord began with his death on Calvary. In Jesus' death and resurrection, victory was won over the spiritual powers. Their weapons of death and combat condemnation were taken from them. Our salvation is through the judgment brought down on that day. Our wrongdoing was condemned in the death of God's Son, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Not now, not ever. We can look forward to final judgment without anxiety, but with complete joyful anticipation of being freed from the wrongs done to us and the sinful impulses that tempt us. And Jesus' death and resurrection revealed him to be uh, worthy as God's chosen king. In the person of Jesus, God has returned to rule his people and to extend that rule to all people. And so we belong to the day, the day of the Lord Jesus. All who have faith in Christ, all who trust that his death means salvation, we all are saved to belong to the day. Now, of course, while the day of the Lord began at Calvary, the night is not yet over. We live, as it were, in the dawn twilight when the coming day overlaps with the dying night. We look forward to Jesus' return as the rising of the sun that will put an end once and for all this long night of sin, death, evil, and suffering. And the good news is Jesus has not left us alone in the morning twilight. The prophet Joel promised that on the day of the Lord, he, God would pour out his spirit upon his people. This was, of course, fulfilled with the coming of the Holy Spirit, who lives in and among all who accept Jesus' rule. Through the Spirit, we live together with Jesus. Through the Spirit, we are now in God's presence. And because of Jesus' death for us, to be in God's presence means experiencing his love, not his wrath. So we can confidently wear God's armour of faith, love and hope to together live expectant lives, not only because there is no condemnation in Christ, but we are now together with Jesus. No matter what the world throws at us, we can be comforted and comfort one another with the knowledge that we will never be separated from Jesus or God. So let me finish with this. Let's be a church marked by the encouragement of Jesus' presence. May we seek to know Christ with us in all we do, as we worship, pray, and sit under the word, as we enjoy one another's company, whether rejoicing or grieving together, and as we serve our neighbours and go out into the world to bring truth and the peace of the gospel to our neighbourhood. In daily allowing Jesus' presence to be central to our life together, I think we will find the faith, love, and hope to repay evil with good and to be lights to the world.
enabling us as we interact with the people in our lives to move them closer to the glorious day of everlasting life with Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we will never be separated from you, from your love, or from your Son, who reigns at your right hand and is also with us by your Spirit. Thank you that since Jesus died for us, we can look forward with joyful expectation of his return to earth to rule, to bring salvation through victory and judgment on all who oppose you and harm your people. Thank you for giving us your armour. Strengthen us to put down the weapons of the world that do not protect us and teach us to stand firm in faith, love and hope. Strengthen us to be lights to the world, heralding the coming of the dawning day. Please deliver from the, their persecutors our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing uh, deadly persecution and give them the strength to forgive and love their enemies. Show us how we can love and serve those around us, how to help them to know you and trust you, so that together we will all be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. In your mercy, may there be many of whom we could say what Paul said of the Thessalonians. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.